Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read, downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with someone whose entire career as a business person and executive coach has revolved around helping people and organizations to change, to learn and grow. He's the CEO of Ideas Unleashed, which helps experts turn their audiences into income. In addition, he's a thought leader in his own right, with one of the world's most popular business podcasts, The Get It Done Guy. Steva is a licensed NLP Master Trainer Elite with the Society of NLP and draws upon these skills, amongst many others, to create change. I've had the honour of knowing Steva for quite some time now, and uh, whenever we chat, what always strikes me is his ability to explain often complex ideas with great clarity and elegance, and I've therefore been looking forward to this interview for quite some time. Welcome, Steva. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And um, jump, jumping straight into this, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do and how you got started. Well, as far as what I do, I'm the CEO of Ideas Unleashed, and we work with people who are thought leaders. We take their content, help decide how to bring that content to market, what kinds of curriculum could be built with it. We build the curriculum, we market it, we basically do all the work. And this is a business that really is returning me to my roots because I first got into change work as a teenager. I read a book on NLP called Frogs into Princes and one of the things that it promised or that it claimed that it promised was the ability to understand the way that experts thought about the way they did their expertise in such a way that you could learn their expertise and transfer it to other people. And this is a process they called modeling. That was my initial interest in change work is I wanted to use it as a way of learning new things because I love learning and I love teaching. And in fact, Ideas Unleashed is, you know, many years later, I won't say how many because I'm vain, uh, but <laughs> many years later, the, it, what's so interesting is that's exactly what I'm doing professionally is I am going in learning people's content, building a model of it that can be taught as a curriculum, and then teaching it to people, which has been a theme throughout most of my life. The, when it comes to change work in the therapeutic sense, in the self-improvement, self-help sense, that is, that is, happened around the same time and it really all came down to part of the promise of NLP was the ability to communicate with people that you didn't otherwise, for whatever reason, connect. And I had trouble making friends as a teenager and I wanted to know how to make friends. And 
NLP was the only set of tools at the time that I had found that gave me concrete, demonstrable, repeatable stuff that I could do to get past some of the communication barriers that I'd been having. And that was, that was it. I wanted to make friends and I wanted to learn stuff. And those two things led me into the change work. Because I, I obviously speaking to a lot of people uh, like yourself who are involved in this kind of industry, one thing that seems to be the same for all of them is an intense curiosity about learning how the world works. When it comes to learning things, that's what I'm always looking for. I'm looking for what's useful. I don't know the degree to which we can ever really even know the true nature of reality. Uh, and, and I don't know that it matters. In fact, one of the things that was a big shock to me, this, this happened very late in my development to date, is that I was always concerned when doing belief work with people. I was always concerned about replacing illogical false beliefs with the truth. So, for example, my business partner believed that he was bad at math and all of the evidence that I saw on the outside is that he was good at math. And I asked him at one point, I said, you know, tell me about your math skills. He's like, oh, I'm bad at math. I'm like, really? And we delved into a session examining that belief. Now, I could have replaced it with a belief of I'm good at math and that would have been more accurate. But the question I've started asking more recently is, look, people survive their entire lives with these cockeyed limiting beliefs that are totally unrealistic. Are there cockeyed empowering beliefs that are totally unrealistic, but if you happen to hold them, they'll result in you accomplishing far greater and better things than you would have otherwise. And now I'm kind of on the search for that. And that's explicitly looking not just for understanding the world around you, which is the question you asked. That's explicitly saying, I want to go beyond that. I want to explicitly not understand the world around me, but I want to misunderstand it in a way that gives me more power in the world. I don't mean power necessarily in the sense of, oh, I get to tell people what to do, but I mean power in the sense of I will do more, I will try more, I will experiment more. You know, One of the powerful beliefs I believe you can have is a belief something along the lines of any mistake can be recovered from and is just a learning opportunity. And if you really truly believe that deep down inside, it's a very powerful belief. It's probably false. I can think of a lot of mistakes that you can't ever recover from. But if you spend your time being too uh, afraid of the things you can't recover from, you're never going to take any chances. Like most people err way, way, way on the side of not trying enough versus of trying too much, except for teenage boys. Teenage boys, on the other hand, you know, that whole business about climbing out of the cab of the car while you're racing across the desert at 80 miles an hour and standing up on the cab of the car with nobody driving, it's, that actually might be unwise. But, you know, generally speaking, people don't take a lot of risks. In terms of change work, uh, whether it's with organizations, helping them to change, to grow, or with individuals, uh, what do you see as the challenges involved with facilitating change? Well, the the challenge, the biggest challenge involved with facilitating change is that by definition, a functioning organization or a functioning human being is a collection of negative feedback loops. That in order to be a stable person or a stable organization, you have to have a lot of mechanisms in place that preserve the status quo. And that's a good thing because if you didn't have those mechanisms in place, you would just fly off in all directions. If you're talking about a business, let's say you're a restaurant business and you've got two dozen locations, every single one of those locations has to know the same processes and be able to deliver everything at a consistent quality level, which means if something deviates, you need to have processes in place that push it back. So mm -hmm. maybe you monitor how long it takes to get someone their food and if that number gets too high, then you go in and you say, okay, we need to streamline things so that the 
the weight that our customers have is less. Uh, that happens in individuals as well. Somebody who, the, you know, even somebody who has some sort of problem, they preserve that problem because that problem does certain things for them. There are forces in their life that, that act to preserve that problem. And one of the hardest things in my mind about change work is not just figuring out what the problem is and how to change it, but what are the forces that are going to act to bring that problem back and making sure that you take care of those as well. Because people are not just systems in and of themselves. They're also embedded in social systems. Are you familiar with the book The Lucifer Effect by Phil Zimbardo? I haven't come across it. In the early 1970s, there was an experiment done at Stanford University called the Stanford Prison Experiment. Mm -hmm. Long story short, you take a bunch of psychologically normal kids, divide half of them using a coin toss into guards or prisoners, and within two days, the guards are so abusive that the prisoners are having nervous breakdowns. And the prisoners are so meek and mild that even when presented the option of leaving the experiment, even when they say, yes, I want to leave, none of them actually think of then saying, so let me. It's, it's a fascinating experiment. And one of the fields of study that came out of that is the idea that human beings adopt the roles that we are given. And we adopt them very completely and we adopt them very quickly. So part of change work and, and, and what a role is, I mean, think about it, what it means to have a particular role, what it means to be a prison guard, what it means to be a prisoner, those are social roles. Those are not internal roles like that one has with oneself. Those are the roles that the people around you expect you to have and that you expect to have. So they're social constructs. They're not necessarily internal constructs. And that, in fact, was one of the big results of the Stanford Prison Experiment, was showing that if you create the right social environment, you can get people to adopt roles that are that result in behavior that's really, really different from any way that they would ever behave, quote unquote, on their own. So when you're doing change work with people or with organizations, one of the big things to look at, in my mind, is the roles that the person has within the organization, or if it's an organization, the roles, I mean, I don't know what you would say the role of the organization is. It might correspond to the organization mission or vision or something like that. But looking at the level of roles and getting people to think in terms of this is my new role. If you're familiar with NLP, the word you would use is identity mm -hmm. here. But it's the, really in my mind it's the same thing. So if I – let me give you a real example. I was working last week with a gentleman who has been deeply addicted to some very dangerous substances. And he is currently clean. But one of the things that happened a couple weeks ago is he went to a party. Somebody offered him some things and he, he – blacked out and, you know, woke up with people standing over him. And his, res his resulting strategy is, okay, I have to cut off all contact with my social circle because I don't want to relapse. I don't want to have this happen again. And he came, he, well, he came to me. I offered, I'm part of the social circle, and I got his letter saying that he wanted to cut off contact. And I said, rather than cutting off contact, why don't we sit down and do some hypnosis and things and see what we can do so that you can be around people who are engaging in the behaviors you find problematic without feeling the need for you to engage in them yourself. And part of that work is finding him a role to have because the role that he's always had when people were doing these substances, his role has always been one of participant. And without – we can do all of the micro work we want in terms of his reaction to the substance. If he still has no social role in that situation other than participant, he's risking slipping back into it. So part of what we did is we looked at what are the different roles that you can have. 
What are the social roles that you can have that don't involve you doing substances, but you can still be around people who are doing them? And, you know, for example, a role like that might be, might be I can be the designated driver. I can be the guide, the person who watches to make sure that everyone's healthy and that no one's freaking out. I can be the caretaker of my friends. So this way, if his friends start to do something that he doesn't want to do, he can step into the role of caretaker or designated driver or whatever. And now that role itself can bolster the behaviors that we gave him so that he has both the role level, role level reinforcement but also the behavioral reinforcement that we did with hypnosis and anchoring and all of those kinds of things. Uh, so we're coming at the solution in two different ways, a contextual social way and also in, in a, an intrapersonal strategy way. So, I mean, there's a, a real thrust on focusing almost, uh, as you point out, at an identity level. Yes. And then fill, uh, so that the, filter, the behaviors that you want then filter down from that. Yes, okay. very much. Well, well, not just so they filter down that, so you don't have an identity that conflicts with the behaviors. Mm-hmm. Because if his identity is, I'm part of the crowd, and people are drinking, and his behavior is he's resisting, then the behavioral resistance will come into conflict with the identity of, you know, but wait, I'm part of the crowd. So he needs an identity which can be congruent with whatever behaviors that he puts in place. And, and I mean, presumably the, the question that I need to ask is how um, has that gone, having done the work with him? Uh, the answer is I don't yet have a report back. It was just done a few days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have a report back on the piece that was the social role piece that was mm-hmm. the hanging around his friends. Uh, he is he, he, he says he feels more comfortable hanging around his friends. The real test is we need to get him hanging around his friends when his friends are doing the problem substances. Yep. And um, frankly, as much as I want to test my work, I'm not particularly <laughs> – I'm, I'm, I'm quite conflicted <laughs> about saying why don't you get people together for you know, a substance party just to test this work. That, um, however, we did more in that session than just the substance work. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some things that he'd been wrestling with for several years. I already have heard back from him on those. He texted me yesterday and he said, you know, this project that I've installed on for over a year, I'm now finished with it. Uh, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So I know that at least some of the stuff we did worked. It's funny because, as you know, my, my real passion is is really challenging the idea that change can happen quickly uh, and that when you get the right piece, often you can help people understand uh, and change in very positive directions very rapidly. I keep hearing a lot of people who, despite evidence and despite them even experiencing change themselves, seem to be resistant to the idea that you know change is possible and change can happen. And I just wondered if you have any theories as to, to why that may be. Sure. Those people are stable systems. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, they resist change. And they currently believe change is hard and long and takes time. And there's all kinds of forces in their life that act to reinforce that whether they want it or not. Now, the most fundamental reinforcer is that human beings are wired to have what's called confirmation bias, which means once you believe something, you will tend to reinterpret all evidence to the contrary as being irrelevant or being wrong, even if that, ele- that evidence is high-quality evidence. So to begin with, that is always a factor. It's very hard once you have a belief, for example, a belief that changes long and takes time. It's just hard to change it because you, your brain will automatically take uh, reject disconfirming evidence and take that evidence and reframe it into something that supports your a priori belief or reframe it in such a way that you're allowed to discard it. Decide that, oh, I, the person who said that isn't someone worth listening to or whatever. So that's one problem is just that human beings don't 
take that stuff in easily. But two, in terms of the forces that are acting to keep people from believing that, uh, there's a few of them. One of them is their compensation system. If you're somebody who gets paid by the hour, you have a vested interest in change being long and taking time. I mean, it's hard to keep a practice filled if you're only if you're charging fifty bucks an hour and you only see any given client for a couple of hours. I mean, just in terms of how do you make a decent living, that's a heck of a lot of work to be able to generate the client flow that you need to sustain a business mm. at that kind of price point and at that rapid a change. So there is that, which, you know, I know that everyone says, oh, we don't, we, you know, we don't, surely that doesn't affect us. There have been studies done and objectively, the very same psychologist, if you pay them by the result and if you pay them by the hour, they take different amounts of time to achieve something. They take longer if they're paid by the hour. If they're paid by the result, they're, they're much shorter, more efficient. So the compensation system really does matter. It makes a difference even if it's not a conscious difference. The other thing is that people really don't like to admit that they're wrong and they have a tremendous vested interest in believing that they are right, not just to other people, but to themselves. They want to feel consistent. If I am somebody who has spent my entire life under the model that someone has to work with me for two to three years to get over a particular problem and then someone shows me how to get over that problem literally in three or four hours, then I have to confront the idea that maybe my entire life I have been drastically bad at what I do mm -hmm. compared to the alternative. Um, I have to confront the fact that I have spent years with my clients being in pain when I could have solved everything in four hours. And those aren't easy things to confront. No one wants to know that they have been doing something wrong their entire career, especially if they've been successful. They've been, they've been successful in spite of the fact they've been doing a bad job. Um, those are messages that are really hard on the ego. Now, the obvious reframe for these, which I believe is the real reframe, is 40 years ago, we didn't know these techniques. So it's perfectly fine and acceptable. You know, you, you have up until now, you've done the best you could. Now you know a better way to do it. You know, go use the best you could. But I've had people, I've had, I've had clients say to me, gee, it's a shame this isn't going to last. And I say, why isn't it going to last? And I said, well, because it only took one session. And I said, well, why does that matter? And they said, well, if if it could have been cured this easily, then I've wasted the last 20 years of trying to cure it. All of that was wasted time if it could have been done in an hour. And, you know, and the implication being that, that I would rather have the problem come back than admit that I wasted 20 years. It was, it was fascinating. And I, the person who said this to me, I said, well, you can, the 20 years certainly wasn't wasted. That was the thing that got you to the point where you now could spend an hour. I'll be blunt. I'm not so sure I believe that. I actually think that for 20 years that this person was doing something that didn't work. And they didn't know it didn't work. They should have figured it out when 20 years had passed and it still hadn't solved the problem. But it didn't work. And the thing I did did work. But you, you have to deal with the meta belief of if I cure this fast, it means this bad thing. <laughs> if change can be fast, then the bad thing that it means is I've wasted my time until now. Now, here's, the, here's a problem with getting people to believe change can be fast, is I do think there are some changes that 
you know what, can't be done in a single session or whatever. One of the big disservices I believe NLP does to the world is it presents everything as, oh, all you have to do is sit down for one session, boom, someone's life is completely different. I love it when that happens, and I've certainly had it happen, but there are plenty of people that it doesn't happen for. They, they require more than that. They require doing work between sessions, etc. Mm. And if you get people to believe too strongly the change is rapid and happens instantaneously, then in the cases where it doesn't, they may start beating themselves up and going, oh my gosh, I'm not doing it right. In the case of the client or in the case of the therapist, you know, might be thinking, oh, I don't want to waste any more time. This person's obviously incurable if I couldn't do them in a single session. So what you really need is a balance between the two. And you need to understand there are forces that are going to push you in both directions. And what you want is something that's kind of, you want change to happen as fast as possible and no faster, as Robert Diltz would say, paraphrasing Einstein from a totally different, yeah. uh, <laughs> a totally different field. I, I totally get you. And um, for me, because I, I know a lot of people have, have, have challenged me when I've been talking about this, about, you know, this idea of rapid change. And, you know, I think there are some things that by the nature of the issue, it just one of the things that they might need is time. And time, I think, is a valuable factor. You know, the passing of time can also be very therapeutic. Um, I think my gripe is similar to, to some of the stuff that you said, which is that whether it's the compensation system or not, some therapists, they buy into too much this idea that, you know, certain problems are so deep, it's going to take years and years and years of analysis. And I think that expectation doesn't do the client any favors either. Um, I very much think it doesn't. And what you just said when you talked about taking years of analysis, the way that I think of a human being and uh, and this is a simplification I want to emphasize. This is not a literal description of how I think of a human being. But I think of a human being uh, the same way that I think of a any kind of complex system. And the metaphors that I use since I'm trained as an engineer is complex engineering systems. And the way – so – Let's say that you have your computer and your computer is working great today and then suddenly uh, uh, something goes wrong and every time you try to open a program, it says protection violation. You don't need to understand every piece, every event that has happened that creates the protection that, that went into creating a protection violation. If you simply go in and look at in the system as it exists today, what are the dynamics today, which may have formed as a result of the past, but, but what is today's dynamic that causes that error message to pop up? And you go in and you take a look and you notice that the file is now read protected or something and you change the protection code. Done. You have just solved the problem. You don't know how it got to be set that way. You don't necessarily even care. All you care about is you can identify the elements of the system that make it function not the way you want it to today. And you can change those elements today so now it functions the way you want it to. Now, if it keeps coming back, now you need to look around in the system and say, okay, what is it that keeps setting this to be read-only? And then you notice, oh, wait a minute, this is a file that's in my Dropbox account and I use Dropbox on this other machine and that other machine keeps setting this to be a read-only file and the fact that it's read-only now gets propagated through Dropbox. In that case, you delve into the history of how the read-only thing got set because it keeps coming back. And so in order to fix the keeps coming back issue, you need to understand what is, the, what is today's mechanism that causes it to keep coming back. Mm -hmm. But sometimes 
you, it's not in Dropbox. Sometimes there was just some other glitch or something else happened, and you'll never know what it is. But you can still make it so that you can access the file. Other times you need to delve in and understand what is the process that keeps setting the file back to read-only. For me, I, what I'm taking from this is a lot about working with where they are now and that believing that somehow exploring the past or reliving past trauma is the way of you know, having a cathartic release and getting through problems. And that's really diametrically opposed to what you're saying just now. Well, some of those things have actually been been disproved by research. If you have someone relive a trauma, it does nothing to diminish the trauma, not if you have them relive it first person and re-experience it. If it did diminish the trauma, then the fact that they're traumatized every time they see a trigger would itself be solving the problem, right? Because if they relive the trauma every single time they see a trigger, then if reliving traumas caused the traumas to go away, they would be automatically taking care of it themselves. Um, However, there are ways to relive a trauma that will help to relax the trigger. As you know from NLP, we have this thing called double VK dissociation, which can be used. Um, in fact, there's some research into memory formation that supports this in a big way, that supports that when you, if, you rem- if you can remember things and remember them the right way, the memory itself is open to modification. So once you are remembering the thing, you can then modify it if you know how to modify it and it gets written back into memory, changed. And that is, you know, I, I first learned the NLP change personal history technique 35 years ago. Wow, something like that, a long time ago, 35 years ago. And at the time, we had no idea how it worked. We just knew that it did. Now we understand enough about how memory is formed that I think there's a really solid research-based foundation for understanding why that technique works. The funny part is, is that most of the people in the NLP community don't know about the scientific research and the people who are in the research community and memory formation don't know about the NLP technique. So when I read one of the papers on this thing about memory formation, they said, you know, we speculate that this could be used to overcome traumas, but we don't really quite know how we would do it. <laughs> and I was kind of like, well, you know, for what it's worth, someone other people have been doing, have been using this method to, or have been using this phenomenon to overcome traumas for 35 years. And maybe one of these days, one of them will tell you if you're really interested. So that's one thing. You know, the, the other thing about is you, you mentioned, um, actually, I lost my train of thought. Okay. Can you repeat the question? <laughs> if, you remember, if you remember it at this point yeah I mean for me I, I was definitely talking about there's a kind of a societal consciousness around the idea that behavioral change has to be around deep uh, analysis uh, oh, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. reliving trauma right and and that was popularized by Freud that was the basis of Freudian psychoanalysis and the thing is sometimes it actually works now it works for reasons that are different from what's commonly believed uh uh, what's commonly believed is it works because once you understand your problem, they're fixed. It's fixed. Um, I don't believe that's why it's worked. That I don't believe that's why when it does work, it works. I believe the reason it works is because when you delve into the past, sometimes you spontaneously remember it differently. And you yeah. spontaneously remember it, maybe double dissociated the way we talk about in NLP. And and in the course of remembering the past, you actually rewrite some of the elements of it that cause it to be traumatic. And you might rewrite them because you remember it differently. You might rewrite them because you reframe it. You remember being scared of the monster under the bed when you were five years old and you remember it as an adult and you suddenly realize, wait a minute, that wasn't a monster. That was a bunched up blanket. And that realization then causes you to reframe the situation as an adult. And because the memory is is open for access. It gets rewritten when you remember it and voila, trauma is gone. But that's a very sloppy way to do it. That counts on, on hoping that remembering the, and that, by the way, that only works for pro for problems that you have whose structure is that 
somebody is collapsing back into a past memory. There's plenty of ways that people get screwed up <laughs> that, that are not that way. So I think that that concept came from Freudian psychoanalysis, which occasionally really did work because you know, he was lucky enough, right? I don't know what he exactly he asked people to do, but he actually had people change today's mental representation in the course of relating their past. But, you know, there's there's also been a lot of research. There was even a lot of research when I was in school because I did my thesis on, on in part, the effectiveness of NLP, which is contrasted with other types of therapies. And one of the things I remember coming across at the time is there had already been plenty of studies pretty much debunking Freudian psychoanalysis completely, mm -hmm. that it's not shown to have any particular success rate. But even though the specific technique has been shown not to be effective, a lot of the background stories of how the technique works have gotten into public consciousness, and that's what people think of when they think about change and when they think about therapy. Mm -hmm. The things that nobody thinks of is is there was that person you hated in 10th grade and they hated you and you were enemies and you would sabotage each other. And then one day, you know, you, you ended up next to that person on the school bus and you were talking to them and you turned to them and said, why do you hate me so much? And they looked at you and said, well, wait, why do you hate me so much? And you say, well, I hate you because you hate me. And they say, well, I hate you because you hate me. And you both burst out, laugh you both burst out laughing and the next thing you know, you're best friends. This is this is a true story, by the way, or r roughly a true story. I've changed a couple of the details to protect the innocent. Yep. But um, but nobody nobody says, "Gee, you have to to sit down and recap, you know, the the five years you've been tormenting each other through school in order to re be friends." It's an instantaneous reframe, and um, when things like that happen, people discount them. They don't notice. Mm -hmm. The only things they notice are the change that is long and takes time. Why do they notice it? Because it's long and takes time, for God's sake. <laughs> you know? Um, sometimes people will notice instantaneous change if, it, if, it has a, if it's accompanied by a really cathartic feeling. One of the things that was one of the hardest things for me to learn about NLP and some of the other modalities that I also use now in addition to NLP is that a lot of the most effective ones do not produce these profound feelings of change and catharsis. They work so naturally with the brain's normal mechanisms that you have a conversation. The person goes, well, okay, yeah, that's interesting. I, I guess I'm thinking differently about that now. And they go out and they're really different. And it doesn't feel like, oh my God, I've had this incredible catharsis. And for me, I had to get used to the idea that I'm not going to see someone fall on the ground crying and you know, sobbing in relief. They're just going to go, oh, you know, I, guess, I guess maybe that worked. And then I have to do the follow-up to see if it really did or not. I had someone who asked me the other day, don't you feel really amazing when people like are enthusing and effervescent and bubbling over with enthusiasm because you helped them or you changed their life for them? And the truth is it doesn't really happen in the way that I always thought it would before I got into change work because once they, they have the change, it seems like it's just that's how they are now and they don't seem to be enthused about it in the way that I think even they thought they would be ahead of time absolutely and you know and again that's one of the things that's also that's also counterintuitive to the people themselves because people expect maybe to have a big cathartic whatever mm. you know and sometimes they do i mean don't don't get me wrong it is it is not the case that people never have catharsis catharsis yeah whatever the whatever the word is mm -hmm. but an awful lot of the time you can get some fairly significant change because remember you don't normally, day-to-day -day normal change doesn't happen with this gigantic catharsis. You know, something happens and you go, oh, wow, that was good or that was bad. And you remember that. And the next time you're in that situation, you just 
kind of unconsciously do the same thing you did before or avoid doing the thing that you did before. And it's, there's not this big, oh my God, this is horrible. This is great. It's just, it's just, oh yeah, you know, this, this time I'm going to, I'm going to remember to pull the chair out before I sit down so that I don't have to scrunch my way in underneath the table. And, you know, now remember, I said I got started in all of this because I was interested in learning and the transmission of expertise. Mm -hmm. I simply view change work in the therapeutic sense as it's the same, it's all the same mechanism. I mean, your brain, your brain is a learning machine. And when it learns something that is dysfunctional, we call that a problem and we say it needs therapy and especially if it learned it by emotional learning or whatever except one of the things we've discovered now is that emotion is required for all learning even so-called cognitive learning and analytical learning so to me it's all the same thing if someone comes in and they have a problem I think of that the same way that if someone comes in and says could you teach me how to do planning or to do a mental skill that I don't currently have and when people when you make a successful plan you don't fall on the ground sobbing, going, oh, my God, oh, my God, my life has changed now that I have a successful plan. Or, you know, now that I've learned how to successfully – I recently learned how to make a paracord bracelet. Uh, my ambition is to be a teenage girl, I guess, or something. But, um, uh, you know, I, I did not fall on the ground crying when I made my first successful paracord bracelet. I was like, oh, look at that. I managed to make a paracord bracelet. Yay! Now how the heck do I tie it on my own wrist using only one hand? Not that easy. But that the, – the, the not problem aside – um, and, and learning, both learning that, is, that points you in a direction of greater functioning and flexibility in your life and learning that can point you in the direction of decreased functioning in your life, that can happen just as, as mildly as learning anything, mm -hmm. frankly. You know, it's, it's all about your, I forget what they call it, I think it's called the, the locale nervous system. You know, you just, you, your brain is constantly learning stuff as you go through life and it's learning, you know, what path you took to get to the restaurant for lunch. It's learning what you ate for lunch. It's learning the clothes you put on this morning. So tomorrow, if I ask you, where did you have lunch and what were you wearing? You'll be able to answer without having given conscious thought beforehand to saying, you know, tomorrow someone might ask me this question. Therefore, I will remember it. No, your brain, there are certain categories of things that your brain is just always learning. And that category of things, sometimes it learns stuff that gets in our way later on. And it's not intentional, and it's just learning. It may be very emotional and, and dysfunctional learning, but it's just learning, and you have to approach it the same way. And mm. by the way, mm. if I want to correct, if, if let's say you're doing an algebra problem and you don't know how to do it and you do it wrong, I don't have to sit down and go into the details of how you got to the point where you knew the wrong algebra problem in order to teach you the right way to do it. Well, look, I, I, I think um, just moving forwards, um, could you give me a couple of real examples uh, where you witnessed um, either in yourself or with people you've worked with what I would call rapid change? Sure. Um, a year ago, someone came to me for some help uh, with premature ejaculation. Mm -hmm. And we did one session on it. And about four weeks ago, uh, I ran into him and we were having lunch and he said, you know, I was wondering if you could help me. And I said, with what? And he said, well, you know, with premature ejaculation. And I thought that's interesting. And I said, well, um, you know, didn't we do that last year? And he was like, yeah, but you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still nervous about it. And I said, okay, well, um, I'm just curious, you know, when's the last time it happened? And he thought about it and he thought about it and he thought about it and he was like, well, I guess it was... And he named a date that was previous to the session I had done with him. Wow. And I said, so um, 
<laughs> just out of idle curiosity, is it possible then that the session we did together worked? <laughs> and he was like, oh, I guess it did. I hadn't noticed. And that, by the way, is really important. Yep. You know, that, that he was still worried about it. What we fixed was the premature ejaculation. What we did not fix was the anxiety about the premature ejaculation. He was still anticipating it even though it wasn't happening. So, you know, we took care of it by, by fixing the anticipation. But what was interesting is those were two different things. So that was one case. That was a, that was a premature ejaculation case. Um, uh, well, there was the gentleman that I worked with last week who had been involved in a project that he'd been procrastinating for over a year. Mm-hmm. And the big issue is that he was a perfectionist. And whenever he contemplated finishing the project, he would sit down and make a list of all of the possible things he could do that he hadn't done yet that would make the project even better than it was. So what he was comparing was – so this was the comparison he was using to decide if he was done. He was comparing the way the project was today with his fantasy of the best it could possibly be. And all we did was change the comparison of the project today. And again, we did, when I say we changed the comparison, we changed it on the unconscious level. We used NLP techniques so that this is what his brain would do automatically. Simply doing it consciously, he then might just end up in a situation where his unconscious was still doing it one way and his conscious mind was doing it the other way and then he'd be conflicted. Mm-hmm. So we, were doing, we, we changed his unconscious comparison process. So instead of comparing where it is today with where it could be in some idealized world, we just had him compare it today with, with what he had promised to deliver. Mm-hmm. And if it was as good as he had promised to deliver, he would deliver it. And he did it. Um, he also had a couple of other things going on, which we dealt with in the same session. Mm. One of them was he was very proud of the fact that he had always, he, that he had never said no. He always said yes to everything that people wanted, and he always delivered it as absolute best. So the combination of inability to say no and always deliver 100%, you can imagine that one could very quickly become totally dysfunctional if you do that. Well, this guy is young enough that he hadn't yet accumulated enough projects in process for this to be a problem. So this strategy had worked for him until very recently because until very recently, he had had the, uh, he had had the capacity, he had the amount of time and the amount of mental energy to be able to be pushing all the projects he had said yes to, to completion. But at some point, he said yes to the project that pushed him over the total amount of time and willpower he had. And now he was in a completely different space where he needed to start making prioritization decisions. He had never done that in his life because he had never needed to. Mm-hmm. So a very highly functional strategy for him suddenly became dysfunctional as soon as it had gotten to a certain amount of time. I'll tell you another one. This is not a case of fixing someone. This is a case of breaking someone, the someone being me, which is the day that I paid off my student loans, I suddenly became unable to make financial decisions because prior to paying off my student loans, I had been in debt and the question in my brain had always been, can I afford to do something? And the answer was always no. Very, very easy decision strategy. Once I suddenly had money, if I had $10,000 in the bank, then the question is, can I afford to do something? And the answer is, well, yes, I've got $10,000, so I can certainly afford to do something, but should I spend it on this fancy dinner out or not? And how much should I spend? And obviously, if I say, if I spend money on every single fancy dinner out, then I'm going to not have $10,000 anymore. So it's actually a much more complicated decision-making process to make financial decisions when you have a positive net worth versus when you have a negative net worth, at least for you know a 25-year-old or whatever, however old I was. 
And that really paralyzed me. I had to develop a whole new way of approaching financial decisions. And I might add, you know, I've only been so-so at it. I'm still not convinced that I have the best strategy that there is. But, um, but that's another thing that's really important to understand about rapid change is that some rapid changes come about because the strategy that has worked fine up until now can't cope with changing circumstances. And the problem is not that the strategy was dysfunctional. The problem is it's just no longer a match for the circumstances. So again, the only degree to which history matters is to let you know how the strategy is colliding against current circumstances, and then you just design a new strategy that works for the current circumstances. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's very cool uh, hearing you talk about this stuff. And if there are people out there who want to learn more uh, about rapid change or helping people uh, facilitate change in the way that we're talking about when we start you know, talking about we change it at an unconscious level and things like that, uh, what would you recommend they do or books to read and uh, things to you know, really go after this as an interest? Uh, my favorite book is Using Your Brain for a Change by Richard Bandler. Mm-hmm. That's one of the big ones uh, because that describes the NLP technique of submodalities, which is one way of understanding people's internal experience. Another one, boy, the, the piece of, one of the pieces of NLP that I think is incredibly valuable is something called uh, the Milton model. And the parts of the Milton model that, are, that I think are useful for people regardless of what type of therapy you practice is – is learning about something called linguistic presuppositions, which you can read about in the book, The Patterns of the Hypnotic Techniques of Milton H. Erickson, Volume 1. And what presuppositions are, those are the things that are lurking beneath what people say. So if I say to you, I need to go feed my cat, I have just communicated to you, I have a cat, and that it's possible to feed the cat, and that the cat needs to be fed. There is a lot of communication that people give you that is implied like that. They don't say it outright, but it is, it is implied to be true by what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And the patterns of the hypnotic techniques of Milton H. Erickson 1, when you th- learn about linguistic presuppositions, it turns out that you can tell a tremendous amount about the way a person is thinking and a way in which they're tripping themselves up by listening to their presuppositions. It's almost like a whole other language that you, once you are trained to hear it, you start listening to what people say and you're hearing them on two levels at once. You're hearing whatever it is they're saying, but then you're also hearing this entire rich soup of underlying assumptions and things. Very, very useful. And a lot of people, a lot of people do it instinctively. Um, a lot of people can do pieces of it but haven't been trained rigorously. And one of the, the tasks that I give people who I'm training is I say, sit down in that book, go through those linguistic presuppositions and practice creating each one a hundred times and practice hearing them. Mm-hmm. Like go out and listen and just find that presupposition. And once you've practiced, you don't have to think about it much anymore. You'll start to automatically hear it. What you're training in that case is you're just training the ability to pick up on it. If people want to hear more from you or get in touch, how can they do that? You can find me on the web at steverrobbins.com, S-T-E-V-E-R-R-O-B-B-I-N-S.com. That's my main website. You can sign up for my newsletter, which is mainly around – creating an extraordinary life and extraordinary careers. So it's creating an extraordinary life, although a lot of the emphasis is on careers. I sneak in a lot of psychology stuff, but it's usually snuck in in the context of negotiation or the context of how do you deal with difficult people or the context of how do you better prepare yourself to have a career. You know, The answer is by clearing up a lot of your own mental blocks and misconceptions and things like that. So I don't teach therapy as such. What I teach is how to master your mental world so that you can be a more effective human being. And some pieces of that 
may involve identifying things that hold you back and fixing them. But I don't, I don't put myself forth as any kind of therapist. That's not how I deliver my products and services to the world. And, and I wouldn't call myself a therapist. If someone shows up and says, oh my gosh, I have, you know, these issues that I want to deal with. Um, if the issues are, you know, purely emotional issues, well, the person I talked about with the substance abuse problem from last week, that's an exception rather than the rule. That's someone who I know personally who I knew that I could help out, so I did. But most of the time, it's workplace things. It's I have an abusive boss. It's I am an abusive boss. Things like that where it's, it's all done under the umbrella of career and life design and, and business. I'm a Harvard MBA, so you know, I, I have to look like I, I'm talking about business no matter what I'm talking about. <laughs> Also, uh, I am on Twitter and Facebook under the name Get It Done Guy, which is the name of my podcast. So please feel free to check out the Get It Done Guy. The podcast itself, you can find at iTunes.com forward slash Get It Done Guy. That's iTunes.com forward slash Get It Done Guy. And there's this new app called Periscope where you can kind of do like these mini little little webinars, you know, for like a couple minutes at a time. And I'm just getting into that. It's connected to Twitter. So if you follow me on Twitter, you'll get links to that when I decide to do one. I'll talk about some interesting concept for 30 seconds and then go off and do other things. Well, look, we, we really appreciate you uh, spending time talking to us about uh, your knowledge around change work. Uh, obviously, we will also put the links to the website uh, on uh, the episode details of the podcast so people can find it easy to get hold of you uh, if they wish. And uh, just really appreciate you spending time with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And, um, you know, if this is popular, we can do it again sometime. And if it's not, then we won't. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested, and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapidchangeworks. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works. 